Hi, I'm Sheila Daz, and welcome to Flow, where we discuss the power and the problems of conversation. Today is going to be a fun one where we discuss a storytelling with Matt Goldberg. Before we get there, I just want to say a big thank you to you all uh, for listening today and, and to being listeners uh, throughout the last couple seasons. This has been a real passion project for me, and um, I really appreciate all the feedback I've been getting. So please keep sending me feedback. If you haven't already signed up to follow the program, don't miss your chance. So you can always be sure to stay in the flow and be with us as our next episode comes out. Matt Goldberg is founder, artistic director, and co-host, together with Deb Van Slet of Confabulation. Well-known and well-loved. A monthly show of people telling their own true life stories. Now in Montreal and Victoria, my hometown, by the way, and uh, I was just out there visiting my family, so I'm kind of sad I didn't catch a Confabulation show there. <laughs> it's so good. It is it's the same size as the Montreal crowd. It's a big, raucous show. I'm so proud of them. So Andrew Carolyn did awesome work. Next time I'm in town, I'm going to make it a priority. Right on. <laughs> Seriously. Um, and now, a Confabulation has its own podcast with the stories, even interviews with the storytellers. You give workshops. It's been part of the Fringe just for laughs. It's talked about on CBC, other news outlets. <laughs> and most importantly, has a regular and an enthusiastic audience. I first heard, though, about confabulation um, straight from the horse's mouth from you, Matt, when I ran into you in the a union coffee lounge um, where we both have our day jobs at Vanier College. And you started telling me with much excitement as normal <laughs> about this new project. And that was 13 years ago. Wild. This is our 14th season. And I don't understand. I, I, I started as a teacher and the show started at the same time. It's it's really amazing, but I'm not saying that um, just to like flatter you um, and um, you know congratulate you. Although like I feel that's in order because I think it really is um, a tremendous achievement. But I think that speaks to how confabulation really deeply strikes a chord with people, and that's interesting to me. Because storytelling is hardly a new form, mm -hmm. and it's something we all kind of do all the time. And I, you know, I was thinking about it. As long as we've been communicating, surely human beings have told stories. So, what was it like when you founded it that you thought storytelling needed a venue? Um, what need did you want to respond to? I have to, and I have owned up to this at the show. Confabulation began uh, as a very selfish endeavor. <laughs> I had really fallen down the rabbit hole of storytelling podcasts and shows, and I had become obsessed with this art form. I love this art form. Um, obviously, I was becoming an English teacher at the same time. So it's, it's not that the idea of stories was altogether new to me, but this idea of storytelling as performance really appealed to me. And yet I had no idea what I would ever talk about. And in talking out this idea, the idea of, of storytelling with friends in the theater and arts communities, um, this is something I wanted to do. It became so obvious the, the only way to do it was to do it. <laughs> and the only way to find out what my stories were, were to have a venue to share them. In. And, and as my good friend Meg Deer pointed out, you're 
a producer of things, you should just do this thing if this is something you want to see happen. And it's so funny because that very first month I learned uh, how much work goes into putting things on. And I had originally intended not to tell a story. I was going to be an audience member and soak it up for a few months. And then, mm -hmm. but uh, it was something of the spirit in the room that night. I, I told you were called to the stage, called to the stage, the brief impromptu piece. Uh, and I've told the story every month since. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly, the energy shifted away from I need a place to share my stories to this real uh, love for the stories of the community. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, when I talk about my own stories at Confabulation, um, I don't think of myself in the same way that I do the art, the artists that we're presenting. Because I'm someone who's holding that together as a host. Mm -hmm. But um, it really has gone from being this, I'm calling it a selfish endeavor <laughs> off the top is a little weird. That was like a, like something that was just really important well, to you personally. Right? I mean, yeah. But now I realize the thing that I love doing with mm -hmm. it is giving people an opportunity to hear the stories of, mm -hmm. of the world around them and a place for people who might otherwise not have the opportunity to share this art form mm -hmm. to share and a chance for established artists to practice what is a craft that we don't always think of as a craft. Yeah. So you've said already a couple of things I think are interesting. Like you first actually talked about the audience members that you wanted to kind of create a community where people could listen to other people's stories. Mm. Um, for me, that's really neat because when I think about storytelling as some somehow connected to conversation, we'll get into that more. Um, there's always a listener and the community is super important. So how do you feel the, the audience contributes or does it contribute somehow? Massively. I mean, we should say, um, the show wouldn't exist without an audience, mm -hmm. not not just from an economic perspective. I think okay, we probably fair. could have uh, a collective and find that in a very enriching experience. Mm. But what we're doing is this community arts project is trying to both practice an art form and also provide what I think is kind of an essential, I don't want to say service, that feels a little, mm -hmm. <laughs> a little mm -hmm. high and mighty. Yeah, yeah. But, um, there's this appetite for story on an entertainment level, I suppose, but also I think that there really is an enrichment that happens. You you get something as an audience member listening to more stories. And to be honest, as a storyteller, you get something having people hear your story, not, not just the laughter or the empathetic chest rubbing, oh, I feel you. You really get um, a perspective, uh, a validation, appreciation. It, it becomes a part of a cathartic or emotional or just introspective journey. Yeah, I have found that telling what would be in other lenses the same story to multiple audiences in, in different cities, um, just very different experiences. Mm -hmm. The telling the story of uh, being diagnosed a diabetic or of uh, my mother's death in Montreal or in the suburbs or even in Victoria, you get different things with each telling and, and you have to attribute a large part of that to the audience, mm -hmm. what they bring to you, the perspective that they bring, mm -hmm. what they hear. What yeah. they to. And you already mentioned, um, I think, or hinted at, and most people who know Confabulation already know this, um, that these are like real stories you've drawn yeah. from your own life and other people. And that's one of the criteria that you have for that these reflect people's true life stories. Why was that important to you? I mean, 
We love true stories, right? <laughs> I mean, if you've spent any time, I mean, reading, watching, listening, the based on a true story label is such a special thing in our society. We, yeah. we attribute some special value to that. Uh, you go see Oppenheimer. Sorry, just Oppenheimer this weekend. It's big in my mind. But you want to know which of the which part of that was real and which part was an artistic invention. And we put a lot of time and energy in that. I think pretending that I don't understand how we. I can't pretend that that isn't an important thing to us for whatever reason on a rational, emotional, psychological level that as an audience, we want to hear truth, want to know the real thing. I mean, I think it matters because when you hear your experiences reflected in someone else, mm -hmm. it provides you with something yeah. as an audience member. And when you tell a room full of people a story and they nod an appreciation, you get something from that, a validation that your experience is meaningful or real in the world. Conversely, you hear a story that is wildly out of your experience, it completely can shift your perspective on the world. You can suddenly imagine other people's lives differently. It builds empathy. Yeah. And perhaps as a storyteller, you telling a story to a room full of people who have never conceived of the world in this way, it provides you that bit of validation that your experience is more meaningful. And I think it's neat because I've listened to a bunch of the stories told uh, in, you know, in person and on the podcast, it's eye-opening, you know? Yeah. yeah, it just, you know, brings you to other people's worlds. And I guess for me personally, the fact that they're true life stories brings it to a level beyond entertainment. I think that's something important to you as well, that it brings you really into some kind of sense of community, some kind of deeper connection with people that you don't know, but whose lives, like you're saying, um, you can relate to. I I find it hard. Yeah. I get very excited about these ideas. Yeah. And I want to say things yeah. about how I, I do believe that storytelling yeah. can save the world. Yeah. Storytelling can fix it. Storytelling in and of itself is not sufficient to save the no, world. No. But storytelling can provide an inflection point. And mm -hmm. one of the things we talk about with our storytellers, uh, we workshop all of our storytellers. Yeah. We help people to develop their pieces. We work really hard to make sure we don't overwrite their voices. But to understand what that story means for them. And uh, one of the things we talk about is why this story? Why now? And I think if thinking about that, a purpose behind a story, whether or not you say it, mm -hmm. and to be honest, I almost always prefer when storytellers don't say it. If you find yourself wrapping up your story, with, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is, which I will say I have fully done in my life <laughs> as a storyteller. But when we avoid that, when we just have an implicit theme or idea purpose gives the audience that much more to think about chew over and for it to feel validated. I mean it's great I love entertainment I yeah. was a comedian for a long time yeah. before this and I think that entertainment is prime yeah. we're an amazing city for entertainment mm -hmm. but having an experience that can be transformative or or reflective in some way those are rare in our society we're rarely challenged to, to do that and perhaps I think maybe more and more and this is just so cliche to say but I'm going to say it yeah. you know like in a society that has uh, become more polarized, where people maybe don't often listen to other people, no. um, where they might feel their values are being challenged, I think through storytelling about yourself, you're not talking about other people, but just about yourself, mm -hmm. it, it is maybe easy to listen to, easier to listen to than maybe a political debate or other things. 
where values can kind of bubble bubble up and you can be like, yeah, I relate to that. I think about this in terms, it's so funny. The, the way that we change is by meeting people, by having personal experiences, not by reading a message or a comment or a, a six-page diatribe on social media, which, yeah, I haven't quit social media either. <laughs> oh, you um, can find that works though, eh? <laughs> but it, we all, we all, it doesn't. <laughs> and especially as we curate more and more and more and move further and further and further for people who feel or look or talk or experience the world differently than we do. A storytelling show is a rare opportunity to sit with a person whose experience, some of whom whose experiences will be like yours, and some of whose will not be like yours. Mm -hmm. And we will never have a perfect show that shows um, the entire variety of the world, but hopefully you'll always get something familiar and something alienating, something transformative and something uh, calming. Yeah. So you have a whole wealth of experiences so that you can, over time, think differently about experiences. I don't know. I don't have a political agenda in this other than to perhaps build empathy, mm -hmm. to recognize that other people are here in the community around us. Mm -hmm. And I think what I hear in that too, and what I've experienced is empathy, but that empathy actually brings us each personally to kind of a richness in, in, in valuing these different human experiences, getting beyond just your own, which as wonderful as like my own life is. And my own perspective is it's really pale in comparison to all the other experiences out there. And when I hear them and when they kind of get woven into mine, um, I really feel enriched more and more so, actually. I totally agree. I mean, it, it is uh, it is not about the individual listener each and every time. It is about a larger community. But that experience, that journey you can go mm. on as an audience member. I love it. There's a reason that we build into the show um, either an intermission. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah. The drink after the show. Yeah. That's the best part. Yeah. And I, I understand sometimes you run late and people got to go home. Yeah. But if you can have a drink after the show or even just a coffee after the show, whatever you're having after the show, <laughs> and the storyteller is right next to you and you can talk to them, or one of my producers is right there. Oh, I wish I told the story tonight. Here's what I would have talked about. Mm -hmm. the, those conversations are some of the most satisfying part of the evening mm -hmm. to know that it's inspired or changed the way people think interrupted them for a little bit so you've opened up the door for right. us to go a little bit um more into the idea of storytelling as conversation coming up and of course like on the show that's one of the things i'm thinking i'm most interested <laughs> in um how how conversation how many different forms of conversations there are and my my last guest on the show shane omara um actually told me about robin dunbar's work the uh, anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist who was actually like watching people in cafes and whatnot and recording um, what they talked about. And he found that they talked 40% of the time about personal stories. And that wowed me. Um, when you like, hear that, does that surprise you at all that storytelling, not crafted, but just like natural storytelling is such a big part of our regular conversations? It's funny, what actually surprises me is that number seems very low to me. Oh. Because I think about every aspect of life. We we narrate, we talk through stories. You talk to someone about the weather, you're never saying, oh, it's 19 degrees. It's like, well, it's supposed to rain later, but you know what I have? I have to go to my kid's baseball game later. And, you know, they haven't won a game all season, so I really hope we get one more game, one more chance. 
everything becomes a story. We talk about sports. Mm -hmm. We talk about a story. We talk about the who picked who or or which uh, American soccer player is in trouble with the media <laughs> today. Or we talk about the experiences. We talk about going to see a concert. We don't talk about this. Maybe we talk about the set list a little bit. We talk about how we felt yeah. and what we got to do and see. Yeah. Everything winds a little bit into story in my experience. So do you feel then approaching story as an art form also and performing story, do you feel that actually helps us in our everyday storytelling as it might kind of slip over into conversation? I think it can. I think that one of the things I've learned having done this for so long now mm -hmm. is that different people tell stories differently. And as I said uh, earlier, we do workshop with all of our storytellers, but one of the things that I'm very keen on is allowing people to tell and prepare in a form that they're comfortable with. So storytellers who are more intuitive and off the cuff and flow still have to do some prep work. Um, but that experience of telling stories, I think, does change the way perhaps they do all of these little interactions. I can imagine it changing the way yeah. they have these interactions. I know from my own experience, it changes the way that I teach. It mm -hmm. changes the way that I interact with my friends, loved ones. I know that other people like having that time to prepare and that really the, the, the storytelling form is an opportunity for them to edit and reflect and shape a text. So I, I don't know. I guess you'd have to ask them if that's yeah. changed the way they interact on a, on a personal scale. I mean, I, I hope it does at some point because think about why we feel the way we do every time you tell a story. Why, why am I telling the story? Why is this important to me? Why am I sharing this with you? Well, I think about somehow like the practice and preparation aspect, right? That I think practicing anything, yeah. <laughs> um, but also when it comes down to uh, difficult parts of our conversation and storytelling, while it's totally intuitive, like you say, we're just creating stories all the time. Um, on the other hand, I think sometimes uh, we can be more successful at telling stories and other times perhaps we're like boring our friends. And I, I was talking like last year to uh, uh, a psychologist on uh, like boring conversations, <laughs> and, like what to avoid. But I think if we can craft our stories in such a way that they actually resonate and hit with people, we feel better, um, you know. And so if that carries over, I guess that's a good thing. I, I just thought of them. It's the weirdest little example. I I think about department meetings, mm -hmm. and I promise this connects to storytelling. Dear Lord, <laughs> a department meeting, a nightmare. Um, so many important ideas. They're, mm -hmm. they're important, and so many feelings. And I, uh, if you can't tell from my voice in the podcast, I can be an explosive and all over the place kind of person. And I had a call. I have a colleague who's told me for years. Oh, just one argument, just one idea, just focus. Mm -hmm. And I have been incapable of doing that until <laughs> I had this revelation that my storytelling was a little too scattershot. And the last <laughs> few years, I've really tried to simplify and focus my storytelling. <laughs> I've applied this to how I speak at department meetings. I speak to one particular <laughs> idea or meaning or point. Being a storyteller, I do connect it back to my students' experiences, mm -hmm. my own experiences, but I stay focused in a way that I never would before. So maybe it does. Maybe it okay. rewires our brains. Cool. Well, it's a coherent narrative. I think I think it does. I think there's actually evidence uh, about that. But, you know, it's it's kind of neat because you were also talking about, like, the fact that, like, we're all telling stories all the time. And whether we're we're aware of it or not, 
And that makes me think that in some ways, and for me, that's indisputable that we all are storytellers. But there's this quote from this Austrian graphic designer that kind of went wild about, uh, I don't know, eight, nine years ago on social media, uh, where he was actually talking against storytellers Mm -hmm. and saying that too many people were claiming the storyteller, you know, sort of mantle, right? Like even people who were designing roller coasters would say, this is a story, um, and it shouldn't be. And, and he was saying, you know, people are overextending this. Um, but aren't we all storytellers? I feel torn because okay. at once, yes, I think we are all naturally storytellers. Whether or not we think of ourselves as storytellers, uh, the way we inter- in, uh, interact socially, the way we reflect on memory, the way we think and operate, we are natural storytellers. It's part of our social function. Some of us are better storytellers. Some of us have trouble with storytelling. But we all do it on an ongoing basis. That said, I do not deny that storytelling has become a buzzword, especially in the business and marketing worlds. Um, it has exploded the number of books on storytelling, on storytelling as a as a tool. It has gotten a little faddish, and we have to think: Is it all storytelling? Do we always mean storytelling? At the same time, I guess I'm on a third hand at this point. <laughs> I think about the way and uh, philosophy teachers can. I apologize in advance because I can't quote Nietzsche, mm-hmm. but I know what Nietzsche has to say <laughs> about memory. And you know, memory is a problem. Memory creates all of these issues for us. It makes us miserable, and yet we have it. So what do we do with it? So yeah, storytelling. We try to apply it everywhere. We see it everywhere. We're doing it all the time. Um, we limit ourselves based on the stories we tell of ourselves, but we have storytelling and we're going to live with storytelling. So how can we best use it? How can we better use it? We don't really want to get rid of our stories. Nietzsche says we don't really want to get rid of, I mean, he doesn't say it, I don't think. He implies heavily. You don't really want to get rid of your memory. If we got rid of our storytelling, what would we have? Oh, yeah, I think, I think if we got rid of our memory and our storytelling, um, we, we really wouldn't have much to look even forward to, much less look back on. We'd be just kind of, um, musing um, in the ever-present now, which... We just do jobs. Well, yeah. Um, so let's <laughs> not go in that direction yeah. too much. Let's not go in that direction too much. But yeah, a lot of people, though, are, I think, um, trying to learn, like you say, from the tool of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And um, in a conversation, when I was visiting in Toronto lately, uh, I was visiting with my friend Connie, and she was telling me that, in fact, uh, in Olivia Chow's campaign... Um, which she uh, was ran a very successful campaign and now is the newly elected uh, mayor of Toronto. Uh, she used the idea of storytelling and personal narrative from uh, Marshall Gantz, uh, who also uh, helped train if Barack Obama needed much help, but uh, in the art of storytelling. And I think everyone is kind of familiar with that when he said, I stand here knowing that my story is part of the American story. And that allows for people to connect. And similarly, Olivia Chow talked about her story as being one of a daughter of you know Chinese immigrant parents. It connected to her, her volunteers, it connected to voters, which makes me think about like the collective story, mm. you know, um, when we have people in positions of power, usually in politics and in the media, who are telling their personal stories, that can actually steer right a whole community to think in a certain way. So 
do you see confabulation as a way to also give power to other people to tell their stories to kind of infuse our like our collective dialogue with these other voices for sure i mean there's a real objective to have a democratization of storytelling um in canada we have such a small media part that projects what are the most important stories what is the framing of these stories um i hope that by allowing people whose voices we don't always hear or even um people who are part of a, a rather common experience but to recognize their own experiences their own and meaningful and, and hold some weight in the world i hope that it makes us see each other. I hope it makes us better editors for understanding where we all fit together and how we read the stories that are prepared for us. I hope it makes us critical in that way, uh, but also social in the way that we understand how our individual experiences are different from but connected to other stories. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I think it's just me. I hope it does to everybody out there listening. (laughs) (laughs) So Part of it then is to like bring us uh, more together as a community is what you're doing with confabulation all across Canada. And you found that there's like this real thirst, I think, Mm -hmm. for listening and for telling. But I know you, as I I said earlier, first and foremost, as a college teacher, as my colleague. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that you also teach storytelling to your students. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, because. With my students, we teach like 17, 18, 19 year olds, more or less. Mm -hmm. And with my students, I've found them like confess to me Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about conversation, at least that sometimes they feel a bit shy. Sometimes they feel um, there are a lot of devices around. They don't know how to maybe start a conversation or they feel more comfortable with like making scripts for social media. So what have you found with your students when you might assign storytelling? How do they respond? A bunch of different ways, as, I, as you can imagine. I will say the number one thing I've learned, and this is a bit of a cliche at this point, we underestimate young people that I have students, and I've had students over the past few years I've been teaching this class, who are so sharp, so funny, so focused, and tell these beautiful stories, have these really incredible experiences worth sharing. Um, and I, I stress all stories are worth sharing, especially in a classroom space. Um, But by the same token, as you've said, we have a number of students who are very uncomfortable with this kind of expression. And it's something we really build towards for the semester. We have to create a community of trust. It's not like the live show. We don't welcome an audience into the classroom. That would be weird. (laughs) I also very specifically, we have an agreement in the classroom. We don't record the stories. I ask them to promise to not share the stories outside of the room, that there needs to be a sense of intimacy and and careful handling of the stories in the room. And I I think, admittedly, I'm not one of the students, but I think that's generally respected that we create this sort of comfortable space to share experiences. Um, And ultimately, I stress this, the, the stories you tell do not need to be the, the most painful, the most brilliant, the most life shattering, the most anything. They can just be an experience. They can be about the concert you went to. They can be about going out. They can be about uh, the partner that broke your heart. If, if that's something you want to talk about. Yeah. But 
I, especially because we're talking about 17, 18, 19 year olds, I think it's really important that the students themselves know they are under, they really will not be marked on this in a way that a hardest story wins. But beyond that, if they're not comfortable talking about something, they shouldn't talk about it. Would that also like not make it a good story? Like even if the topic you might say would be really dramatic and deeply personal, but if you're uncomfortable, there's just like no way it's going to be able to be a good story. Do you remember your writing from when you were 17? Actually, I have looked at it. I have. And then I quickly threw it into recycling because I was like, I never want anyone else to look at it. Wow, <laughs> 17 year Matt, 17 year old Matt Goldberg was really on the edge of existential despair in his poetry. You know, I, I think not. I'm not. I don't. I love my students. I don't love what they do. But there is an urge at that age to bare your soul in a way that I think you're more guarded, mm. a little bit older. And it's it's a it's a beautiful instinct to create deeply personal art. Um, I have all my students pitch their stories to me before they tell them in front of the class, and then we go through a complicated workshopping process to make sure that your story is right for you and you're ready for your story and that your story is right for the audience, for the space. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I've had students who want to share these experiences that I I don't know that they know how it makes them sound, how mm -hmm. it reflects on them as a person. And I, I think that we make mistakes when we're teenagers. And again, you talk about the audience, how important Ooh. it is to craft things and and really steer them towards who's listening. It's not just about you, but it's yeah. about having that relationship with that audience. So if they're ready, if they're open, I don't know, that that has to be part of it. Yeah, and I, I want it to be an accessible space. At the end of the day, if there's someone who is, who just can't, mm -hmm. I've made accommodations. Okay. We get a room with 10 of their friends and we do a private oral presentation. That's in nice, space. that's nice. I don't mind doing it. Yeah. It's a passion project. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had storytellers who then came on confabulation and told their story again in a bigger space. When they were of the age of majority, I think that's very important. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the right to yeah. be forgotten and also the right to, yeah, yeah. That, I think it's important. You also spoke about process, though. So yeah. what what were some of the things your students have told you uh, that really helped them in that, that learning environment? Having the opportunity to try a few things out, I think, has really, has really helped. So I provide my students... <laughs> a prompt a week in the story health class. And halfway through the semester, it switches to the prompt or anything else. And it's kind of amazing is the anything else really takes off once students' creative juices get flowing. And yes, if any of my former students are aware, are listening, I am very aware that some of you write them all in the last week. <laughs> That's bananas. Like, you have so much time. Anyway, whatever. Um, but the students who really use that as an offer-up, like it, it's all of the books of creativity tell you make a practice of creativity and you will produce more, better, more satisfying work. Um, at the same time, having an editor, having a workshopper, having a space to talk out your ideas and to look at different ways of approaching a text, that really helps as well. So we have in the class, as I say, they pitch me in a paragraph, the story and feedback, and then they come in for a workshop where we're in groups of six students and, and me, and we talk out everyone's story. We ask questions, it really helps. 
And then if students need additional help, I have provided further feedback. This course is ridiculous, by the way. If you look at my, yeah, I, yeah. no one looks at my contact hours, <laughs> but I, I guess I love it. So it's just like availability kind of all the time. Why am I never free in the winter? Figure it out. Well, I, I'm sure your students appreciate it and probably still do. Probably still do. Um, so we've talked about like confabulation, teaching, and regular people telling stories in the regular conversation. And yet last month <laughs> in the July issue of The New Yorker, there was an article, a uh, beautifully written article um, about uh, against storytelling to- called The Tyranny of the Tale. And uh, the writer, Parul Sigal, uh, was arguing that storytelling has become so popular that it's actually dominating, if you want, like our communication landscape, crowding out uh, maybe poetry, crowding out just being with ourselves and maybe other ways of sitting in the world beyond narrative. How would you respond to that? I am a little bit torn. I am someone who has reduced the number of podcasts I listen to. I'm trying to listen to more music. No offense, podcast listeners. <laughs> but I was careful, Matt. <laughs> I have my AirPods in my pocket. I listen to stories, or for a while, I listen to stories all the time. Whether it was an audiobook, a podcast, uh, even stories from my show, all that, stories all the time. And at a certain point, I became anxious that I wasn't leaving space for myself, for my own interior voice. And uh, it turns out music is great too. <laughs> you have to have music yeah. practice. It's great to get back into that. And I think that most people don't live the way I did, though I'm sure some of your listeners <laughs> were like me. <laughs> Take a break from time time. That said, I read this piece and I don't really know. Well, the alternative to me is not we shouldn't put so much focus on storytelling, but rather we should be consuming more different stories. Mm. And I think one of the problems is what we were saying before, we, we've siloed ourselves off that we read the authors and the essayists and the publications that we like. We live in the communities that we like. Yeah. We engage on social media with the carefully curated TikTok or Instagram or whatever algorithm you use so that the only stories we're getting are the only stories we're getting. And again, I promise this isn't another plug for confabulation. I don't think we do this perfectly well either. I don't think anyone does. Mm. But it is incumbent on us with all of this wealth of access that we have to all of these different sources to read books by other people, to listen to stories from other people, to watch TV shows, listen to music, do things that are different than our own experience so that we can be better editors and choosers of story. So that when we do hear this overwhelm of stories, we can pick and choose which ones are more or less credible or which ones we take more or less to heart. And would that also speak to the idea of stories that are just better art? I mean, not everyone who just has a valid life experience Mm -hmm. um, makes a good story. The experience might be really... Uh, meaningful and it might be you know hugely important to the person and to <laughs> communities at large but storytelling still is an art form sure absolutely we should absolutely okay. value the art form of storytelling absolutely i will also stress that one of the things we do sometimes we have a bias towards our expectations or the things we are familiar with or comfortable with and we have to make sure 
that we're not creating a, a Western canon of storytelling. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, uh, sure. Or any canon. Mm -hmm. I think that we can appreciate different approaches to the art form. I think one of the challenges that storytellers have is that it is work that we have to put that time and effort and energy in. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that we need our storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's really important to me that we pay people for their time. Mm -hmm. um, we are supported by the Canada Arts Council, the Montreal Conseil des Arts de Montréal, for this very reason, because artists deserve support. And even storytellers who are just beginning their artistic journey are engaging in an art form. That said, it, it's, for me, it's got to have both. Yeah, okay. You've got to have a purpose behind your story. Right. You have to have something to share and a reflection on what you're sharing. And it doesn't have to be a life-shattering moment. Mm -hmm. I've told stories about driving my daughter to the grocery store. <laughs> this is not the biggest moment of my life. And yet. And yet, it's meaningful. Yeah. There's something that happens. Mm -hmm. I realize I am going too fast, not the car, I'm a very safe driver. I mean, experientially going too fast. When will this childhood phase be over? Wait, no, I want this. Hold on. There's a purpose in that. There's a meaning in that. And I can be very funny and very expressive in how I tell it. And it can be a well-told story. But there being a reason I'm telling the story as that additional layer. But I do want to ask you now, because I, I have looked at your website and there's so much on it. Fabulous. I listened to the um, TED Ted talk, yeah, of, uh, I always get her name wrong, Chimamanda. Ngozi Yeah, Ngozi Nidice. Uh, I love that about like multiple, like not having just one story. Anyway, but for you, because I always ask uh, my guests for like a recommendation, it can be one or two things, can be a vlog, a blog, a TED talk, a book that, um, I don't know, you like. I just read Paul Lacabec. By Michelle Radagudiati. I'm sorry to my French listeners. Uh, recommended by a good friend of mine. Paul at Quebec yeah. is the first of a, a bunch of graphic novels. Um, the author has a new one out about his daughter, actually. Uh, Michelle uses Paul as a proxy for his own experience. Uh, it's a beautiful story about living in Quebec in this... Uh, the turn of the millennium. Now I'm blanking exactly okay. when it is set, but there it is. A, it is a French Quebecois memoir, and there's all of this stuff that is a little Jewish angle from Montreal. <laughs> maybe uncomfortable at times, but then maybe really reflect on this changing province mm -hmm. and how it perhaps feels from uh, a different experience than my own. And also on top of that, um, this story, this very personal story of aging and change and loss. They're really beautiful. I think it's six of these collect these graphic works. Um, I have to start checking out all of them. I, I found it just really beautiful the way it, it tells stories. I'm sure it takes some artistic liberty with storytelling, but the level of of heart that's in that you really feel for all of these people, and then this principal character that I guess not a narrator again, it's a graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, Paul is such a he's not a cipher, but he's He's almost witness to this whole life and soul experience. And I, I, just, I find that really beautiful. Well, I'll definitely like look at that because uh, that sounds really interesting to me. Also, I'll just admit to you, I don't read a lot of graphic novels. I actually find them hard to read. Really? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I need to interpret um, so much um, in the visual realm sometimes. Um, it's going to break your heart. And this I, one's got some... Sorry, that was a visual cue. Okay. My jaw dropped and I had my heart. So, Matt, 
we're sadly going to have to draw our wonderful conversation to a close. I look forward to many more conversations with you over coffee. But before uh, we say goodbye, can I know what delights you most in the story? The person. I'm a softie. I love getting to meet people. Um, I talk to my students about this all the time. When someone shares a story with you, they are sharing a part of themselves. What do you learn about this person from the way they tell the story, from the story they've chosen to tell? How do you get to know them? It's a little entryway into that person. Um, some of the producers who have been working on Confabulation, I've known now for a decade. And it's remarkable how every story they tell opens them up just a little bit more. I get to learn a little bit more about these people who I think of as being very dear to me and very important in my life, but also the stranger I get to meet for that 15 mm -hmm. minutes. Well, seven minutes on stage, <laughs> three minutes before and after, maybe. Um, I love getting to know the people behind the story. And without that, I mean, uh, that's what we're here for. It's a live storytelling performance. It's, yeah. it's got to be that. It's got to be that interaction. Matt Goldberg, thank you very much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure, Sheila. was Matt Goldberg speaking to me in Montreal. I'd like to thank Rebecca Akone for editing the original music from Glenn Etier and performed by Caitlin May Wong and Jonathan Zituni. As always, a big shout out to Bruce Norton. Thanks for listening and be sure to follow us to stay in the flow. <laughs>